Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. Navigating the world of product marketing is tough. At Fluvio, we get it, probably more than anyone else. We see you wrestling with resources, proving your team's worth, and juggling changing responsibilities all the time. But imagine a world where you could confidently and systematically tackle your product marketing challenges. That's where our go-to-market model comes in. The Fluvio go-to-market model guides each one of our engagements with the likes of Stack Overflow, LinkedIn, NASDAQ, and many more, and provides companies with a path to clarity and success. And now, we're thrilled to package up that model and deploy it within our new product, the Fluvio Go-To-Market Assessment. The Go-To-Market Assessment delivers transformative insights to gauge your team's performance, identify key investment areas, and sets up benchmarks for success. If you are a product or marketing leader, get started today with our proprietary Go-To-Market Assessment and receive a customized evaluation and actionable insights within one week. Just go to fluviomarketing.com slash GTM assessment today. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I had on Chris Mills. Chris is a SaaS executive with over 20 years of experience in the enterprise software industry, including roles in marketing leadership, management, consulting, and product solution strategy. And he currently is the VP of product marketing at Rike. Prior to Reich, Chris led marketing at Ambition and product marketing and go-to-market strategy at SalesLoft. He's also an executive member of Pavilion and a limited partner with Stage 2 Capital. Quick note before we jump in, this one has some wonkiness with the sound. It's going to feel like you're in the room with us, squeaky chair, water gulping and all, but please don't be too distracted because there is a ton of insight to be pulled out of this conversation. We chatted about why product marketers make for great consultants and vice versa, where product marketing should sit within the organization. We go super deep on roles and responsibilities and the best ways to build stakeholder relationships, discuss early stage versus late stage product marketing, define the key considerations when defining a go-to-market strategy and the current rocky state of company valuations. And finally, we talk about SaaS pricing models and how they're going to evolve over the next decade. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Chris, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to have you on today. Hey, Dom. Great to be here. So you're based in California, right? I am. I'm in uh, San Francisco. Been here for 23 years. Nice. I'm sure you've seen a lot of change there. Yeah. Yeah. I came out for grad school in 2000 and uh, lived in Berkeley for a couple of years and then uh, moved to the city in 2002. So yeah, lots of changes in in the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular over the last 20 years. Yeah, I can only imagine. Well, let's jump right into it. I'd love to just have you go through your journey in the SaaS industry you know, from your early roles, becoming a product marketing leader at SalesLoft and now at Reich. I think a lot of folks can learn from your path. So yeah, why don't you just sort of walk us through that? 
Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so yeah, I started my career actually on the management consulting and system integrator consulting side, um, doing a mix of like kind of strategy management consulting as well as some sort of technology deployment um, and even a little bit of coding, although I'm not, not, not an engineer by trade. Uh, and then left the consulting uh, kind of firm world and went to work for a software company uh, on their services side. So basically implementing ERP software for PeopleSoft, which eventually uh, was acquired by Oracle. Um, and so like that got me onto the software side, but still in the services world. And then left to go to business school, basically had a great time in the services world, but you know, had kind of a, a unusual life in, uh, in that I traveled pretty much like nonstop for six years, you know, for a big part of that. I didn't even have a, an apartment or house. I just like lived on a plane and, and wow. lived in corporate apartments and hotels. Um, so I got tired of that, took a break, went to business school, um, which is what brought me to California from the East Coast. Um, and then coming out of business school, switched over from the kind of consulting services side of technology to product management. And so did product management for a few years, you know, at a big software company in the CRM space, and then left there to go kind of uh, to startup world and work for a small e-commerce company. And that's where I did sort of a combination of product management and product marketing. And so it gave me a little taste of like what both worlds, product management and product marketing uh, were like, and just oriented myself more towards the external sort of outbound facing nature of product marketing, which was closer to the market, closer to sales, closer to the customer than the you know product management side, which um, you know is generally more internally focused, working in engineering, defining what you're going to build, making sure what you build meets customer needs. Um, so that's what got me into marketing. And then over time, I've done a mix of product marketing leadership roles. I've done a handful of marketing like full stack leadership roles, leading marketing teams from product marketing, demand gen, corporate comms, et cetera. So I've done a mix of the, of the roles. I always sort of come back to product marketing just because I, I, I like the strategic nature of the product marketing role and it sitting sort of at the intersection of sales, product, and the market marketing functions. You have an interesting background in that you started in management consulting and then eventually found your way to, to business school and then transitioned into the product, product management, product marketing. I feel like a lot of folks go to business school and then like 40% of business school graduates end up becoming management consultants. You most did that the inverse. Yeah, it's interesting. I looked at going back into consulting when I was coming out of business school. It's like kind of what I knew, but I also knew that the lifestyle wasn't something that I wanted forever to you know, just sort of um, be going from company to company, you know, sort of solving problems and then moving on to the next company. I liked you know, the concept of like going to a company and sort of owning something, owning a function, and, uh, you know, not just doing a project and sort of moving on, but sort of owning the outcome of the project. Uh, or the initiatives that you were driving. Um, and I'd spent, you know, I'd spent that first kind of six years before business school in technology, in software. So it was a natural sort of transition to go on into the software world, but more on the sort of like, you know, kind of management of the product management of the go-to-market function of, of taking products out to market versus, you know, kind of delivering those via services to customers. Do you think that you like learn something or took something away from 
being a management consultant or even in the services side that has helped you become a better product management and product marketing leader? Yeah, I actually think that like one of the, you know, one of a lot of product marketers don't start out of college as a product marketer. Like I think, I don't think I've ever hired a product marketer straight out of college. Like they usually come from a different role function. And I think consulting role, like consulting is a great, you know, starting place to kind of, you know, come into product marketing, uh, sales consulting, you know, so uh, pre-sales is a great place to start and come into product marketing customer facing roles like customer success um, are also places where I've hired, hired product marketers. I think those roles that are customer facing are, are really important um, in terms of like having empathy for the customer, you know, deeply understanding the customer's problems and how you know, any given solution solves those problems and delivers value for the customer, I think is really, really important aspect of product marketing. And I think people who've been in customer facing roles out with the clients in the trenches, you know, working with the technology, helping solve problems for the customer that gives them great empathy in terms of like, you know, standing in the shoes uh, of the, of the customer, which I think is great background for a product marketing role. By the way, I think the inverse is true as well. I think great product marketers can easily transition into being a great consultant. That's what I found building Fluvio. It's a lot of the same muscle muscles um, that you build as a great product marketer translate well. There's a couple things that you have to learn, client relationship and management and, and such, but uh, I do think that there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, uh, 100% agree. I mean, product marketing is one of those things where you know you need to be an expert at the market and the customer and the pains and you know, how a solution maps to solve those pains and, and you know, articulating the value and all those things, I think, do, do you well as a consultant um, in all kinds of consulting roles because yeah. generally people are hiring a consultant to come help them solve some problem. And so like product marketers are generally pretty good problem solvers. They're good problem solvers. And also there's an element of like, you have to be super confident and instill trust across various functions and that's a critical thing as a consultant you have to do that as well so um, inherently yeah. i think they, they work out as a as consultants so i guess given your your background in product management before moving over to product marketing i think that gives you sort of a unique perspective as a product marketing leader yeah how do you envision these two areas product management and product marketing intersecting and hey, I guess what's your, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. I mean, I think the product marketing and product management roles are very clo <clears throat> closely related. I mean, there are even frameworks like the old serious decisions, you know, the uh, product marketing, uh, you know, framework and the pragmatic uh, product, uh, you know, marketing framework, which sort of combine like elements of product management and product marketing and, you know, certain, certain, you know, tasks or, you know, sort of swim lanes are owned by product marketing, certain swim lanes are owned by product management. Um, and it's pretty clear and you'll find a lot of variation in that from organization to organization. But often as you move from organization to organization, there's a lot of like gray areas where sometimes it's owned by product marketing, sometimes product management. Um, many times it's a collaboration between uh, product management and product marketing. I think it's important to have 
racy, you know, models, which are who's responsible, who's accountable, who's consulted, who's informed. I think for each box or swim lane in the go-to-market process of how you're building and taking, you know, products to market, I think it's important to have like one person or one team that's responsible and, and accountable for things. Um, but as long as you have those, you know, kind of roles defined, sometimes things may sit in, in different functions, like pricing and packaging is a perfect example of that. I've seen pricing and packaging owned by product marketing. I've owned it, you know, both personally and it sat within my teams in product ma- product marketing before, but um, often it, it can be owned by product management as well. And it's one of, like pricing and packaging is one of those things that is a very cross-functional um, you know, oriented discipline. Like you can't just make decisions in a single department, right? Like you have to understand the perspective of the product, of the market that you're serving, you know, the customers are different segments of customers that you're serving. There's financial aspects of it. Like if you price at a certain level, are your margins healthy or not? There's competitive aspects of it where, where and how are your, competitors pricing their products. And so there's a lot of elements that go into it. And I think it needs to be a cross-functional discipline. Um, you know, at, at sales loft, we had a pricing committee that was made up of yeah. you know, members from different parts of the organization. I chaired it in product marketing and typically made recommendations of what we we're going to do, but it was ultimately a committee, uh, decision that there was, you know, our president, you know, was the tiebreaker. If, uh, if there was a disagreement or misalignment on, you know, trying, trying to align on something, uh, we're, we're at Reich, uh, which is where I am now. Uh, we're just in the process of establishing a pricing committee to make decisions like that. And in this case, it's actually like the, the owner of the committee is from product management. She's kind of my counterpart on the product management team. Yeah, I think the committee approach to packaging and pricing absolutely makes sense. We've done that here at Fluvio, and I've seen that work in-house as well. It's a good example of an area that could fall in product marketing, could fall elsewhere. Ultimately, a lot of teams have to touch it. We actually recently ran a poll on LinkedIn regarding where product marketing sits, whether it's within product under the CPO or under marketing under the CMO. And 52% of respondents said that product marketing sits under marketing or should sit under marketing. 43% said product. And then there were some others. And actually I've reported into it a COO at one point, which I thought was interesting. What is your take on where product marketing should sit to, to best sort of define roles and responsibilities? Yeah. I mean, I've seen it in, in both situations, sometimes reporting directly to a CEO or COO um, in an early stage, uh, company because they saw the strategic nature of like, it's not just product and it's not just marketing. It's really like the, the partner to the CEO who's trying to figure out the go to market motion and the ICP and the storytelling and message and, you know, how you're going to position the company. So I've seen it in that case, generally as a company scales, it's going to end up in either product, uh, product management or marketing. Um, most of the time, it sat in under the CMO and in, in marketing in the organizations that I've worked in. Um, I think it can work in either place. Uh, I think more often than not, product managers who ascend to the product management leadership role have likely never been a product marketer. Um, a lot of marketers, you know, marketing leaders particularly if they came from the product marketing uh, route, may have been product managers before, so they kind of understand both worlds a little bit. 
Um, so like, I personally like that better uh, and think it works more effectively. The other piece of it is, is if, if product marketing sits inside product management, your focus is almost entirely on the product and you know how you're launching new products, how you're evolving the product, how you're messaging that, how you're enabling sales to go sell the evolutions of the product. Whereas, like if, when mark when product marketing sits under marketing, there are a lot of other elements that product marketing can and should own, in my point of view. So, and things that are yes, like there's a big part of the role which is directly re related to the product and how you're taking the product to market. But there are other things that product marketing, I, I believe, should own that aren't directly product specific. So things like, you know, what's your what's your ideal customer profile? Who are the buyers? What's the buyer committee? You can do those things in product management, but I think those things are closer to marketing uh, than they are the product itself. And you, you're more focused on the user and product than you are necessarily on the buyer. And uh, things like competitive and win-loss, uh, I think, are things that should be owned by product marketing, which may not get the attention that they need and want and, and deserve um, if it sits under the product management organization. Uh, I think things like industry marketing and solution marketing, which are like a mashup of what does the product do, but then how do we tailor the message and tweak elements of, of the solution that we're delivering for the, uh, and, you know, for the ultimate customer in various ways for different audiences, whether it's by industry or kind of use case or whatever. And I think that function works better under marketing. I think, uh, you know, analyst relations are things that I've owned a lot um, under marketing as a product marketer, which typically those things are not going to be owned by product management. Often product management is involved in the interactions that you have with analysts, but they're not necessarily going to drive the analyst relations strategy and you know, sort of how you're how, to, how you're managing those relationships. So generally, I find it works better on, under marketing, and that's where like when I'm leading marketing, I put product marketing on, under marketing and uh, where I prefer to work. But I think if you've got a good partnership between the product marketing function and the product management leadership and how the product gets built. That, that, that's the thing that's most critical. So yeah. wherever like that, you know, if you've got a good partnership between those stakeholders, it doesn't really matter where it reports. Yeah. It's sort of a moot point. If it's, if it's working really well and you're, you have a cross-functional leader in there that does a good job, it doesn't really matter. I do echo everything you said in terms of, you know, sitting under marketing and the benefits there. And most of the initiatives that product marketing owns are better, probably better suited to marketing on our side. I, you know, this is sort of anecdotal, but I would say 75% of our clients' product marketing is reporting under the CMO versus the yeah. CPO. And we've worked with a couple of clients that have transitioned that. We've helped them with that transition by identifying, you know, what the role means for the company, what are the KPIs for the, the role itself. And then that sort of leads to where it should sit. Um, yeah. And so, it's, it, it varies, I think, by company size and stage too, right? I think like in early stage companies, marketing the marketing department and marketing leadership tends tends to be more focused on demand generation lead generation because yeah. they're trying to feed leads to the sales team um and and the, you know the person that might be leading the the marketing function at that point is very sort of demand digital marketing focused and might not know as you know as much about product marketing uh, you know, as, as you need a product marketer or two and so in that case it might make sense for the product marketer kind of report into the you know the product 
leader who sometimes is a founder or co-founder. I was going to say, it, at times so it can be the CEO. At that stage, yeah. I think a lot of the work that the like the starting product marketer is doing, the founding product marketer, oftentimes is supporting the vision of the CEO um, and yeah, defining the go-to-market strategy, which at that phase, it's the founder, CEO, typically focused on that, which brings me to my next question. So, you know, as a as an exec at companies like SalesLoft and now at Reich, ultimately you're responsible for defining the go-to-market strategy. Are there some key elements that you believe are successful and that you should always be thinking about when you're trying to build a go-to-market strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few key elements of, you know, kind of driving a go-to-market strategy. Uh, the first of which is uh, know the market that you're serving, uh, right? I, I think there's a lot of things in the product marketing, you know, sort of profession needs to be sort of a subject matter expert. And the key is, is like, what market are you in? What market are you in today? What market do you want to be? What's the evolution of the market that you're serving? Who are your ideal customer profiles? And who are the buyers and influencers who have the pain that you're trying to solve for? Um, because I think that that's key uh, because everything that you do after that depends on your sort of understanding of that market that you're serving. And then, uh, you know, speaking to that, like what are the pains for that market that you're solving for? So like, who is that buyer? What are the types of companies that are going to buy your solution? Who's the, who are the human beings and roles in those organizations that have the problems that, that your solution is built to solve for? And, you know, how do you, how do you quantify those pains and are those pains worth solving or, you know, are the people that you're solving them for willing to pay money to solve them? And is there like a specific return on that investment of, of solving those problems? And sometimes you can solve like amazing problems for buying centers um, that don't have you know, they don't have budget. They don't have buying authority to buy a solution. They have the pain and they love your solution. But like, you know, in a typical organization, they may not have budget holdership. So then you need to kind of figure out, do I make that person my champion, but then try to navigate that relationship to somebody else who actually does have the budget. I mean, that's one of the things, like there are a lot of companies that serve and sell into and solve problems for product marketers. Typically, product marketers don't have a huge portion. I was just going to get into this subject, actually, because that's we I, I've invested in and we partner with a bunch of companies that, you know, provide software aimed at product marketing. Obviously, we're a product marketing consulting firm, but ultimately we're working very cross functionally and we're typically working with CMOs and CPOs who have budget product marketer, uh, product marketing leaders like a director. Sometimes even VPs, what we've experienced, don't have budget or a very small budget. Um and so we've been working with these companies on how do you create a go-to-market motion for product that can utilize and champion the product, but ultimately the heavier user is product marketing. It's kind of challenging. And do you think that's going to change? Do you envision product marketing getting budget ownership over the next several years? I think it depends on the organization. Like in an organization that, that that's like ours, that's very PLG driven and you know, it's very focused on, you know, getting eyeballs to see who we are and driving them through a trial motion, you know, a lot of our marketing efforts and budgets are going to be spent on you know, paid and, and organic uh, acquisition and all, all the tooling and things that you need to drive that. Uh, product marketing sort of owns competitive analysis and we might have some consulting budget and some content budget 
analyst relations reports into me, so I have the budget for analyst relations. But like when you factor that against the digital and demand spend that we have, and then just general marketing operations of the marketing tech stack, which typically sits in the marketing ops function, like I have a very small fraction of the overall uh, marketing budget. Um, whereas I think in other companies where there may not be as much digital marketing focus and you know kind of paid uh, acquisition, um, you know the product marketing function may have a you know bigger bigger proportion of of the you know spend, but like that's because there's generally like less yeah you know, there's a more balanced spend across the marketing organization. Right, I guess that makes um, sense. When product is an acquisition channel, then product marketing might have more budget. Yeah. Um, so, but getting back to like the key things from a go-to-market strategy, so it's like, know your market, know the pain that you solve for, know the landscape of like, who are the other players and alternatives for the problem that you're solving for. Sometimes it's a spreadsheet or do nothing or status quo. Probably in most cases, it's a spreadsheet, status quo, do nothing. Sometimes you're in a you know, com competitive space with a bunch of direct competitors. Sometimes there are tangential competitors, but I think the product marketing function needs to be expert at what those alternatives are like if it's direct competitors like what is your kind of differentiation um and you know, what makes you better and i think that's the that's the fourth piece of the equation for go to market is like how do you articulate why your solution is different and better at solving the problem than whatever they're currently using today, which may be nothing and maybe spreadsheets and maybe cobbled together you know, solutions of, of different types, or maybe it's a direct competitor uh, that's incumbent or they're you know knocking on the door as well. And I think it's critical for the product marketers to be able to articulate that story and the value equation and why you know your solution is better than you know, either the status quo or the next guy. And I think that's frankly where a lot of product marketing organizations and, and organizations in general struggle is you sort of loosen the customer up. You get them to recognize, yep, I had that pain. I need to solve that pain. It's worth solving. But like all, all of you look the same. Like I'm talking to five different alternatives. Like you all kind of do the same thing and sound the same and, you know, have a similar set of features. Maybe they're called slightly differently or maybe you do one thing and uh, another company does something slightly different or does another thing. But, you know, you do all these other things. It's, it's hard. You know, I've been in the buyer's shoes and like when you talk to a bunch of, you know, different vendors and you see a bunch of demos, by the time you're done with a month or two month long evaluation process, all the demos blend together, all the decks, all the pitches they all blend together over time. You're like, did that company have that thing? Or did the other company have that thing? So it's, it's you know, a lot of what is going to determine who wins a deal or not is the company that does a better job of articulating, like, how they're going to solve the problem and how they're going to do it better differently than, than either the current solution or the other solution and making that memorable uh, so that the buyer in, in the end is like, nope, these guys really understand my business and the way they articulate their story is much more effective. And I trust that I'm going to get the results and solve the pain that they're saying they can help me with. Could I get it with the other guys too? Probably. Uh, but like, I trust these guys better because I think they did a better job sort of understanding my business and articulating a story that resonates with me. Yeah. There's often resistance. I, f I believe that marketers and companies 
come up against in regards to trying to feel different while also balancing fitting into a category and aligning with like trends, right? Like AI is a good example. Everyone's like co-pilot for XYZ or like, you know, everyone kind of sounds the same. I can't, you know, there's so many companies that are, you know, the, the AI enterprise search or something like that. You can find uh, dozens and dozens of, of companies that way. There's a really good book called Different Escaping the Competitive Herd by a Harvard Business School professor, Youngmi Moon, that I read. It was actually a, a required reading when I was at, Am- uh, at Etsy, uh, the CEO at the time, Chad Dickerson, I believe, um, made everyone read it because he really believed in it. And it was really good. It was it's a lot of it is pretty basic, but you know, basically human nature is to form into a herd and all go in the same direction and become commoditized and right. do that. And it's uncomfortable, but what you should do is a couple of lessons of one, like strip down a lot of what you're building and marketing and selling and make it super, super simple and limiting choice. And then try to move in opposite directions from the rest of the herd just to stand out from the crowd. And uh, you don't have to kind of hit all the the themes that are in market. Um, yeah, th- there's a couple of things that you said there that really resonated with me because, you know, literally I'm working with my team and the head of product management on our product keynote for our uh, big user conference that's coming up in a month or so. And we're talking about launching a few things one of which is our right co-pilot. Uh, and we made a conscious decision of like, do we call, like, do we give it a name like Jarvis or like a robot type name or like a you know personal assistant type name or do we call it like co-pilot or AI assistant or whatever? And we specifically chose co-pilot because like other people are gonna know what that is without us having to explain it. And it doesn't sound techy and wonky AI. Um, and so we consciously chose to do it that way, but like, I've been working with the team to tease out, like what's different about our co-pilot versus a co-pilot that you might get from Microsoft or one of the other vendors. Like we have to be complementary or augmentative, augmentative to those things or, you know, solve a, 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 you know, a different problem in a different way than the other alternatives. Um, cause yeah. otherwise, you know, people are just going to get confused. Like I already have a Microsoft co-pilot or you know, Siri, you know, is my personal assistant or whatever. So like, how, how do we tell our story that's clearly different than everybody else? One of the books, and I actually have it right behind me, uh, that I've used for kind of differentiated messaging is obviously awesome from April Dunford. Yeah. And yeah, she does a really good job of like, you know, helping create frameworks to like, you know, how, like, what problems are you solving? Who's your customer? Like, how are you different than the alternative? And what's the value that it delivers for the customer? And who's going to care? It's like, yeah. ultimately, you have to find the person in an organization that cares about that problem and is going to benefit from it being solved in a tangible, you know, sort of quantitative way. Otherwise, in this environment, it's really hard to sell anything. Like, if you can't articulate the value story, um, both qualitatively as well as, you know, in an ROI quantitative way, it's hard to sell anything right now. Like every dollar that we spend is being scrutinized. And if you've got a value story, it's going to be a tough slog. Yeah. Right now is definitely a very tough time. You need to be differentiated for, I mean, you always do, but yeah, right now more than ever before. Uh, Yeah. I think the whole co-pilot versus creating a name, there's a balance there. I mean, co-pilot, 
is good because people are familiar with what that means at this point and they're comfortable with it. So they immediately will say, oh, okay, great. I know what that is, but I want to hear what Reich's version of that is and why that's different. So you can kind of strike a balance there with being familiar, defining yourself as a certain type of, you know, tool and then, you know, differentiation and messaging can come thereafter. Yeah. So naming is one of the most interesting things that we do in product marketing because like it's not an exact science and like yeah. do you use descriptive names and how unique do you want to be? And you know, everybody's got an opinion, but like, you know, who ultimately makes the call on what a name is going to be. We've just kind of gone through that process for a handful of like major things that we're working on. And through that process, we've actually created a racy of like who's actually responsible and accountable for like deciding on the names when like the, you know, there's a big debate. And we're also trying to pull the naming conversation further back into the development cycle as we're ideating on the things that we're going to build. Because one of the problems organizations have is, is they like create sort of a code name that they, that, or just a descriptive name that they know sort of isn't good, but they're like, ah, we'll name it later. Like that's, that's marketing's problem. Like they'll figure it out later. But by the time you spend six months, 12 months, you know, however long building that thing, the name sticks internally and then you've probably done a bunch of customer interviews and called it a thing so it sort of starts to stick with customers and you know inertia uh creates a difficulty in sort of changing that name to something else as you get closer to taking the thing out to market yeah i've experienced that myself as well a bunch of times actually um yeah agreed you should define the name in advance and we've done a number of naming exercise and like architecture builds for clients where we define all their product and services how they play together and bucket these things and naming is definitely tricky we we use a spectrum approach where it's you know we start with the aspirational like it doesn't tie into really anything it may be a feeling or a sentiment and then all the way down to just a description of what it is and we'll do some some customer and market surveying. And actually we're, we just completed some research on naming for a client, which I will not name. And the outcome of that work was no pro no names. <laughs> They're not going to have any product names, which is everything's a description. Everything's just a description. Um, they have a yeah. platform name and then everything else. And they're super mature. This is an enterprise company. And so they have tons and tons. And I think that's what, you know, led to this is it became so confusing with all these different names that didn't, you know, operate under the same theme. And so, yeah, now they're just going with a description or what the capability is. I mean, as long as you have like a model, a mechanism, a philosophy on how you name things, I think that's the most important thing. I mean, often what we're naming is features within a product rather than like naming new products. Like even established companies, like how often do they bring an entirely new product to market? Most of what they're doing is building innovative features on top of the product that they already have, or even evolving features that, that, that exist in the product today. And so I think in that world, like having descriptive names of what your features do is kind of fine. You don't have to give them a name, but you know, I think we use a model that's sort of a tiering mechanism of like, a tier one thing that's going to like, you know, yeah. create differentiation, allow us to sell into new markets. Like that's, it may not be a new, entirely new product, but it's a significant innovation that's going to drive revenue and growth from the company. Like those things get a name, smaller things that are like incremental innovations or smaller kind of customer requested things that we're building or things that are sort of at parity with what others might be doing may just get a descriptive feature name and, and we move on. And then you put the, you know, brand 
uh, effort into the bigger, you know, kind of named uh, products or named product capabilities. Yeah, I think the tiering approach makes the most sense. The, the challenge is some companies didn't start with that. And so a lot of the work that we'll do in, on this front will be like reorchestrating and documenting what their whole product library is and then building a architecture and then, you know, revamping naming and then moving forward, they can use the tiering mechanism. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's an interesting process. I, I do like it because uh, it's a little bit of art and science which is what product marketing is really great at doing. So yeah. I, I'd, I'd love to dig into some some areas outside of your day-to-day -day as the VP of product marketing. I know you're a member, an executive member of Pavilion, and you're also a limited partner in LP with, with Stage 2 Capital. How do these roles complement your day-to-day? -day? Why are you involved? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the pieces of advice that I would give myself like 10 years ago self or maybe 15 years ago self is to build a community of people who are doing your job or maybe the next job that you want to do um, that are outside your company. Uh, because I think it's important to like have, you know, a, a community that you can lean on that and be vulnerable with necessarily that you might not want to be within your company. And frankly, people with like a just different perspective on, you know, like, we're trying to solve this problem. We're running into this. There are these barriers. This there's this sort of organizational blockage, and like sometimes those things are hard to talk about in your own company, or you're going to get sort of an echo chamber. I think it's really important to sort of build that external community of of people that you can lean on, that you can ask questions of, that you can leverage people who've kind of gone through the same things that you're going through uh, to give you advice or be thought partners to you and, and, and you know, talk thing, talk, talk through things. Sometimes it's therapy. <laughs> it's like, hey, this is a crazy situation yeah. or struggle that I'm going through and I just need somebody else to talk to about it. So I think that's great. And I think Pavilion, um, you know, is certainly that, that community for me um, of, you know, sales, marketing, CS leaders. I think they've got a great membership base and people are like super willing to sort of lean in and help. And like, there's literally no reason to reinvent the wheel. Like if you need a framework for something and you post something through their Slack channel to the marketing leaders or, you know, product marketing leaders or whatever, like you'll get five different examples, like pretty well thought out, like built out tools or frameworks to leverage. And so it, it's awesome. So like, I think I use it in you know, a bunch of different ways. Stage two is similar. Like it's, you know, a, a few uh, previous executives that I've worked with were uh, limited partners at stage two. And, you know, I'd seen Mark Robert, she was one of the founders of stage two, uh, present at our conferences when I was at Sales Loft, and, you know, just super sharp guy. And like stage two's built like pretty amazing community of like pretty heavy, heavy hitter. Uh, executives from the SaaS world. So it's just like a great community of other leaders. Um, and you know, I think they're all former operators. And so I think their investment uh, philosophy and how they work with their portfolio companies is great because like, you know, they're not just investors, like they've done the job of scaling a company before. And so they look for other, you know, people like me who've, you know, been operators and, you know, been there, done that and seen that across a bunch of different companies. So it's really, you know, it was a fun way to sort of dip my toe into the startup investing world 
and leverage the 20 plus years of experience that I had working for a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different roles at companies of various stages and various kind of spaces and categories and be able to kind of lend that collective knowledge to not just the company that I'm working for, but for sort of a portfolio of companies um, where like they, they just want a different perspective of people who've been there, done that, or seen a bunch of, seen a movie play out in a bunch of different ways in different scenarios for different companies. And so it's kind of fun to interact with the you know, portfolio companies that are you know, looking to tackle various problems and they've got a pretty good mechanism to match, um, you know, founders and, you know, companies that are looking for like, Hey, we need somebody who can help with pricing and packaging or with the new market entry or whatever. And, you know, kind of connecting with the founders. So it's a, it's a cool way to kind of leverage your experience in a way that's, uh, more scalable than just the work that you do for any individual company. Yeah, stage two is impressive for sure. I think the LP base um, is, to your point, yeah, like a, a great group of operators and, and the value behind why a company would, would want stage two involved is pretty clear. It's actually pretty similar to like the early days of what I'm trying to do with Fluvio Ventures, frankly. So it's it's inspiring to hear about that. I'd love to hear a little bit more about any trends you're seeing that are coming through? Uh, you obviously don't have to cite any like specific examples, but any trends you're seeing in uh, the investing early early stage investing space right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough you know investing and tough uh, funding you know uh, time that we're in now. Multiples are you know sort of down, evaluations are down. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, people being a lot more, you know, scrutinizing their investments a, a, a lot more. So you've really got to have a solution that is, you know, interesting, innovative, like solves a major problem that the investment community kind of believes is worth solving. And there are 20 other, you know, companies and people out there trying to solve the exact same problem. So I think being able to sort of articulate a new, new approach to an old problem or, uh, you know, kind of a problem that is, you know, hasn't really been recognized and isn't being kind of addressed in, you know, a bunch of different ways by, by a bunch of different either established or, you know, sort of companies at a, at a higher stage. Um, I think selling uh, at any company scale at this point is difficult, right? Like budgets are constrained, dollars are scrutinized. And so I think, and that can be big company, big public companies, who are struggling to like just tread water in some ways. Cause like a lot of companies like sold a ton of like software licenses during the you know, kind of boom years where people were hiring gobs and gobs of people and you were buying licenses to serve all those people. Well now, you know, some of those people are gone. There've been downsizes and you have a bunch of extra licenses sitting around. So like companies are experiencing a lot of churn um, on things that they invested in a year, two years ago. And so just to tread water and sell more licenses and find new places to sell in the organization because the teams that you're already serving are smaller, um, you know, is, is a struggle for companies, e even larger you know, public companies or scale up companies. And so for the smaller companies, I think it's, you know, you're facing that same struggle. You might not have the churn problem because you don't have that big a user base to go off of. But like what you're doing is you're competing against, you know, share of wallet with all these other vendors who are, even if they're not solving the same problem that you are, they're likely selling into the same buying center and budget uh, that you are. And so you have to be able to differentiate and 
um, say why solving the problem that you solve and the way that you solve it is a, it should be a higher priority and will create a higher return on investment than a dollar spent in this other software, which doesn't compete with you at all, but at some level is vying for the same dollars that you are. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things there. One, the, on the, the startup side. So Instacart just IPO'd and I saw a chart that showed essentially anyone who came in after series C as an investor is going to lose money on the IPO which is just crazy. And I'm sure that there's yeah. just kind of other, you know, on paper um, unicorn companies that are in similar positions that are, their valuations are just going to be dramatically slashed from when they last raised yeah. in the growth stage round. So this company is like in order to incentivize like their employees that they gave equity to at sort of elevated valuations are going to have to figure out ways to keep those employees and, and yeah. engaged and, and uh you know retained otherwise you know people are gonna you know jump around uh, because they, they don't see the you know sort of and and can being as attractive as they might have been before yeah it's sort of the perfect storm because they raised some of these rounds when the market was the hottest it's ever been and now they're trying to find the next stage or exit at maybe the worst time it's been in a decade so just unfortunately right. for some of those companies just the timing was not great um, right, and hopefully they like got stashed enough cash to sit on a powder keg for a while. But those who were sort of raising and were, were raising to sort of fund the growth, but didn't sort of think about the rainy day fund, yeah. are now kind of in situations where they're like, okay, you know, we're stuck now. We either have to raise another round at not a great valuation, or look for an exit at not a very good valuation. Yeah. And then on the enterprise side, you mentioned, you know, seats are, are dwindling. It's hard to, NRR is hard to come by right now. Uh, we had a client who sold, you know, seat-based, a seat-based product. And one of their customers was one of the Fang, I won't tell, say the company, but one of the, the, the Fangs. And they cut eight, they cut a, a bunch of their team, <clears throat> a bunch of their team that equated to, eight figures in, in loss for, for this company. Um, and it's just a difficult time for sure. Um, all the way from startups to enterprise. Um, yeah. And it could have nothing to do with like the fact that like adoption was good. The, you know, customer satisfaction was, was high. Uh, value was there, but just for the simple fact that the number of licenses that the company needs is less than what they did before. Right. That results in churn, and so like it's incumbent on that vendor, to, and, and like if you sell just in the single buying center, like let's say marketing, and every marketing user has a license of that software, and the marketing team shrinks. Yeah, that's like, what happened. That's what happened here. Right? They were selling into recruiting, and recruiting. Yeah, a lot of these companies cut their recruiting teams by eighty percent, and so they just inherently had their their you know their customer dwindle, but. Yeah, so there's yeah. a lot of risk in that model. I mean, I think one of the benefits of a solution like Rike is like we serve many different use cases in buying centers, and so we're not sort of it, like that. That risk is you know spread across multiple areas of the business, and so like if if a user base shrinks in one department, we can often look for replacing those users that shrunk in one department by going after another team uh, who has a different use case that they can use our software for. So like, it's a, it's a bit of a diversification play, which is great. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I feel like there's a trend toward being uh, very niche and whether it's a vertical-based SaaS product that's focused on a certain use case for a very specific vertical or if it's, you know, for a specific role. Um, but it seems to your point that a broader solution actually is mitigating a lot of risk. Um, I mean, there are pros and cons too, though, because I think like, it, you know, if you take a, a, a broad solution that can be sold into a bunch of different use cases, a bunch of different buying centers, you know, not just a vertical niche, but can be sold to any horizontal company. I think that's great because you are very diversified. You can sell in different places, but in thinking about the go-to-market challenges of a company like that, your sellers have to be, you know, educated on yeah. like solving different problems for different kinds of companies for different kind of departmental use cases so there's pros and cons i mean i think uh you are seeing a lot of like hyper focus on the ideal customer profile now so that you yeah. can have the repeatability of like your your marketing efforts are all pointed in a single direction your sales efforts are very rinse and repeat where like your sales teams like know the use case and the buying centers and like the buying process really really well but there's risk in that in that like when you know something happens in that market that you're serving there, you know you have to quickly pivot to you know either solving a different problem for that same department same buying center or going to look for other other things that you can solve for different buying centers yeah you know a product that's to me just absurdly broad and it's killing it but i i don't i'm actually not a user but notion notion i feel yeah. like markets to every single possible use case for any company any role it's like a it's like a blank canvas product and it for i don't know how it got to this point in terms of you know its success I, again i don't use it so this is just yeah take it i think it's, it's, it's one will. of the, one of those companies that did a decent job of like defining a fairly sort of horizontal uh yeah. use case and market that it was going after um and you know solving for different things yeah so we're talking about trends that we're seeing. I, what are your thoughts over the next decade, two decades? What do you expect to happen in the enterprise software space? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, we've seen you know, product-led growth emerge. Product-led growth has been around for a really long time, but I think we've definitely seen like a, focus on you know product-led growth and like a bunch of companies like do very well and sort of like catching on to the you know product-led growth uh trend as the primary vehicle for which they go to market uh, i think we'll continue to see that trend i think in the early days like there were only certain companies that had a product that was like you know sort of fairly simple and easy to use and easy to sort of, you know, kind of get going and worked in both single player and multiplayer mode. Uh, I think the, the companies that are taking advantage of PLG motion have gone broader than that because I think there's a lot of tools and things that you can use even for more complex products to help people through the trial and onboarding process to start to see value and, and um, see the case for, you know, kind of going from trial to, to broader usage or paid free to paid. Uh, so I think we'll continue to see that. I, like I've worked for some companies that weren't initially architected for PLG motion. And we just saw like the, the level of investment that would be required for us to architect the platform and our go-to-market motion for PLG was, was, um, 
you know, prohibitive. But I think now most companies are sort of like being architected from the very beginning to at least, you know, have one of their go-to-market vehicles be PLG. Um, so I think we'll continue to see like emerging SaaS companies, whether you sort of SMB all the way up to enterprise, have some element of their product that's this product led. Um, I think we'll still like the death of the salesperson is highly exaggerated, right? Like I think for very large complex products for large number of users, large spend, you're always going to have like a human involved in helping the customer, you know, understand how this product solves their problem and build a business case to spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Like nobody makes million dollar investment decisions without talking to a person and negotiating uh, in terms of terms of a deal. But it's still, I think, an important vehicle. Um, you know, I also think that like a, a trend that we've seen is like it used to be companies made a decision of like you're either SMB or you're enterprise, but it's hard to be both. I think we've seen a lot of companies that have had like a decent level of success at serving, you know, all the way from very small, you know, two, three, ten users all the way up to thousands of users. Um, so where it used to be thought of as almost impossible to serve both those markets because they're di very different motions, both from a sales motion, a marketing motion, and even a product uh, architectural motion. I think we've seen a lot of success happen. You know, SalesLoft, one of my old companies, like we started in kind of, you know, SMB mid-market, but like moved up into the enterprise pretty successfully. Um, other companies that were in that space did the same thing. Um, a lot of the companies that are in the space that I'm in now have a mix of you know, SMB uh, and enterprise customers. And I think that's, you know, their nirvana and people don't want to give up the down part of the market because it's transactional and, and predictable. Uh, but like the, the real money's in enterprise and there's a lot more stickiness there and, and, and growth. Um, so people want to serve both markets. And I think it's possible now as long as you, you think about how you're building your product in a way that can like be PLG driven at the bottom end of the market, but scalable and perform in and have enterprise security at the top end of the market. So I think that's something that we'll continue to see. And then, you know, I think pricing and packaging uh, models have evolved and will continue to evolve. Like, it, you know, it, it, I think Salesforce and companies even before it had a very user driven model of licensing. We still see that all over the place in the market, but I think consumption models, like value-driven models, uh, mix of platform fee plus con you know, consumption or usage uh, models on top of that, I think are you know innov innovative ways to take your your product to market um, and may better align with how buyers want to consume your product versus you know, pay for a bunch of users who may only use it occasionally. Uh, but when they do use it, it's critical to what they do. So, you know, is there a way that you can charge based on usage versus on a pure user basis? And, it, you know, it doesn't always work for all products, but I think thinking innovatively about how you take your solution market and charge your customers and equate it to the value that you deliver for the customer is something that we'll continue to, to see, you know, evolve and change over time. Yeah, there's a broad theme there, I think, with everything you said, which is companies are going to need to be a little bit more adaptable and nimble and be able to kind of be malleable in some sense. You mentioned like a multi-pronged go-to-market motion. You have to have the ability to do PLG, also have an enterprise 
motion, the product has to be orchestrated in a way that you can do these, you know, both motions. Um, I think that's really interesting. We, it reminds me, we worked with a client last year or this year and last year, and we were working on helping them define packaging and pricing. And you also mentioned pricing and, and how that, you know, multiple models there. So we were working on packaging and pricing for this client who shall not be named a little bit more of an old school company been around for a long time. And we built out this whole strategy and we, we presented it and the VP of product was like, yeah, great. This makes sense. We can't do any of this in the product. The product is just one thing. <laughs> it is what it is. And we can't do any, like we can't, there's no feature like gating. It's, this is just, this is the product. So there's no packaging. <laughs> it was just, it's crazy. I mean, that's just the old way of building a product, I suppose. But yeah, I agree. Moving forward, yeah. customization and be able to be nimble there. Well, Chris, thanks again for, for taking so much time. I know you're a busy man um, leading a, a team over at Reich. Um, so yeah, thanks again for taking time and uh, take care. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dale. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com slash resources. Until next time.